I read this week, a Dr. Amit Abraham, who's a writer and a psychologist, he said, love, love need not speak volumes. Love need not speak volumes. It need not demand proof. It never has a happy ending simply because it doesn't end as long as love is pure and true. And in some respects, you hear that and you think, okay, I can kind of see where he's coming from. But in most respects, I think he's dead wrong. I think true love, and I think the Scriptures tell us, that true love needs to be chatty, needs to speak. It should speak volumes and show proof in spades. Otherwise, how do you know you're loved? If your wife or your husband never speaks of his or her love or never does anything to serve or help, how would you know that you are loved? We need love to speak volumes both interpersonally but also from God. We all need to hear that, that God loves us, and we need that love obvious and clear. Otherwise, we'll question it. We need to see the continual, abiding, constant proof of God's love for us. And silence fosters uncertainty. If God is silent toward us about his love, we will be insecure in our relationship with God. It is possible to be a committed, dedicated, loyal follower of Jesus Christ and yet be insecure about his love for you. To wonder, does he really love me? I don't want any genuine Christian to be insecure about God's love for them. The Bible does speak volumes about God's love, and today we're going to turn our ears to listening and perceiving his love. You can be and must be, if you're a Christian, confident that God loves you. Otherwise, when we face suffering or when we sin, we'll wonder, does God really love me? As the indignity of age chases you down, breaks you down, you can wonder, does God love me? As the frenetic pace of parenting young children takes its toll, you can wonder, does God love me? As you seek God and he seems to be hiding, you can wonder, does God love me? When you sin and lash out in anger again, you can wonder, does God love me? When loneliness affixes so close to you, you feel like it's your shadow, you can wonder, does God love me? As children wander, as parents die, as spouses grow distant, as work lags, you can wonder, does God love me? And you go back to that website, even though you said you never would go there, and you failed again, you can wonder, does God really love me? See, what we need is proof. What we need is to hear the volume, the volumes, the, the, the volume of love, the volume of times that the Scriptures talk about love. And today we're going to get proof that we are loved by God. And this isn't something we have to search out. It's very obvious through the pages in Scripture. All over the pages of Scripture, we're, we see proof that the Father loves us. Where do we look primarily to see the place where God loves us. We look outside of Jerusalem in the place of the skull to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and we see that in the death of the Son, we have proof of the Father's undying love. The Son's death proves 
the Father loves us with an undying, forever kind of love. You might say Jesus died so that we might see, know, and believe that God really loves us. And read beginning in Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. If you have a Bible, follow along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. God's Word begins. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to communicate faithfully, clearly, winsomely, Lord. But most of all, I pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, work through the preaching of your word to touch and, and, and empower every person in this room to recognize that you, O oh God, are a God who loves your people. And when you love your people, you affix your love on them both now and forevermore. I pray, Lord, we walk out more confident in your love than we were when we walked in. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The son's death proves the father's undying love. And we'll see this in two movements this morning. First, the fact of his death. We see this in verse 6. The fact of his death. For while we were still weak, verse 6 says, at the right time, Christ died. This is just stating facts. Jesus died. He was a, he, this is a historical fact. Jesus of Nazareth was affixed to a Roman cross, and he hung there until he died. He did not merely appear to die. He was executed as an enemy to the Roman state in Jerusalem as a favor to the Jews. He died. But it goes further. Our text says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, ungodly. In other words, Christ died in the place of ungodly people. Ungodly is a good word, but it's not quite right here. It's not quite strong enough. Ungodly is one of those small words that we attribute to having a sour attitude or being a complainer or a gossip. We say that's ungodly. But this word could be and should be rendered godless. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the godless. He died for those who did not acknowledge him. He died for those who were not thinking about him. He died for those who were wicked and rebellious against him. He died for us. His death was no accident. He was not swept up into events outside of his control. He planned the crucifixion and went through with it. And he died in the place of godless people. His death is a historical fact, but historical facts without explanations don't mean much. If no one explains why the son died, we won't understand what's going on. But we see here, not only that Jesus died, but he died for the godless. We also see how remarkable and singular his substitutionary death is in verse 7. Paul goes on a comparison. He says in verse 7, For one will scarcely die 
for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. You see the comparison? What he's saying here is he's saying that the pinnacle of human love, giving your life for someone else, this is a story that we see from time to time. And the annals of history are packed with men and women who have given their lives in the place of someone they loved and loved them back. We've heard stories about soldiers jumping on grenades for the good of their platoon. We've heard of women being beaten in protection of their children. Many have been killed so that their families might live. This is human love at its best, dying for people they love and love them back. It's noble and good, even it's noble and good to die for a good person, but God did something much more noble and good and something much more surprising. He died for his sworn enemies. He died for a people who did not love him back and would never of their own choice love him back, but he died for them nonetheless. He died for sinners. He died for his enemies. He died for a people who had nary a thought of him. He died for sinners. He died for the godless. In our world and in our experience, when we see people who have enemies, what do they do? They fight. They fight. They argue. They do battle. They want the destruction of the other person. When we see two enemies, we see two combatants in our world. But This is why this is so remarkable for for us as Christians. What we don't see is that God is a combatant against us. Why? Because Christ came and died for his sworn enemies. He did not come to kill his sworn enemies. He came to die in the place of his sworn enemies. This is so remarkable and so counterintuitive that we repeat it and talk about it every week because otherwise we'll think that it's too good to be true. Machen said, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine or biblical teaching is another way to render that word. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. See what he's saying? On the cross, our Savior died for our sins. Our Savior, Jesus, saw us as enemies and instead of destroying us, died for us. That's what he did. Now, we don't know why yet. We haven't gotten to his motive. But we do know he died for sinners. Now, it could be that we look at that and say, I'm glad he died for sinners. But it could be, if we don't know why, If we don't have a discussion of his motive, it could be that his death was nothing more than a cold transactional obligation. But that's not what we see. We've said before, the son's death proves the father's undying love. And we get that in verse 8. And here's the significance, point number two, of his death. The significance of his death. Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how do we know that God loves us? When we were yet sinners, when we were godless people, God the Son 
died for us. And it's here in verses like this and throughout the rest of the Bible where we get proof of God's love for us. And this is something, if you're a Christian in this room or watching from home, you must recognize that this is true. You who are battered and bruised by life's angry afflictions, do you want an assurance that you're not just not forgotten, but that you're actively loved? Look at the cross. <coughs> you whose bodies are failing you, look upon Jesus crucified and know you're loved. You whose minds are slowly betraying you, look upon Jesus crucified and know he loves you. You who work a job that you hate so your family can eat, look upon Jesus, the crucified one who loves you. You who failed and went to that website again, look upon Jesus, the crucified one, and know he loves you. You who wage a, a daily war against demons of regret and remorse, look upon Jesus, crucified, and know he loves you. You who have no idea how you're going to scrape together enough money for rent this month, look upon Jesus, crucified, and know he loves you. You who lashed out in anger again, look upon Jesus, crucified, and know he loves you. You who are in a dark and sullen headspace with no glimmer of hope or light, look upon Jesus, crucified, and know that he loves you. You who toil in prayer for the salvation of a child, a spouse, a parent, a friend, look upon Jesus, crucified, and know he loves you. You who failed again, take your eyes off your failure and look upon Jesus, crucified, and know that he loves you. You who are achingly alone, look upon Jesus, crucified, and know that he loves you. This is a truth that we can't revisit too much. This is a truth. This is the reality, Christians. We can't revisit too much. We live life. It's difficult, and we think, surely, surely, I have outsend the love of God. False. Or we go through something that's so difficult that our souls just creak with the weight of the burdens on our back. And we think, surely this is a sign God does not love me. False. How do we know? Well, we look. We look at the cross. And we see God showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, at the crucifixion, we see an abiding and movable assurance of God's love for us. And this is so good and so necessary that the proof of God's love is outside of our experience and outside of our hearts, right? It's good that it's out there. If the text said, but God shows his love for us in that still, small, quiet, calm feeling you sometimes have. Or if it said, but God shows his love for us when you love him back. God shows his love for us in the comfort you feel when you sing or when you pray. If it says, God shows his love for us in the sense of nearness you sometimes have, those things would be of some comfort, but not of the, the ultimate comfort that we see in verse 8. God's love, God shows his love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what that means? No matter how you feel, the cross stands as proof that God loves you. No matter what you've done, the cross stands as proof that God loves you. No matter what you're going through, no matter how things are hitting you, the cross stands as proof that God loves you. And that does not change. That does not change. The proof of his love is public, it's personal, and it's permanent. It's public. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ did not happen in some secret ritual where only one or two witnesses were there. No, the execution of our Lord was meted out by Romans under the authority of Pontius Pilate in public where anybody who wanted to could come and see. This is an event that happened in history. There's no debating the son's crucifixion. It happened. And this matters. This matters because if it were secret or if it were behind closed doors, there could be a rumor that is passed around that said he didn't really die. But there were hundreds of people who saw him die. And it's a matter of history. He really died. He really died. And here's part of the objective proof we need to hold on to. Here's part of the objective proof we need to hold on to. It's this. (laughs) He didn't die in secret in some corner far away from prying eyes. He died where anybody who wanted to watch could watch. His death is a fact. And if his death is a fact, His love is a fact as well. He died for sinners. He died not because we first loved him. He loved us. And that's why he died. We were sworn enemies. And he laid down his life for us. And the best of human love pales in comparison. The best of human love doesn't hold a candle to this. See, this is helpful for us when we sin. Now, we all sin. But there are some sins that bring more shame than others. And we can think that these sins mark us so and define us and render us as damaged goods or unlovable, compromised to our very core. And we think it makes sense for God to keep his distance or to withdraw his love. Why? Because that's what we do when we're sinned against. But that's not how he functions. He functions very differently. What kind of person did he die for? The kind of person that falls short. The kind of person who does wrong. The kind of person that is a rebel. The kind of person that's treacherous. The kind of person who gossips and slanders. The kind of person who lusts and lies and steals. What kind of person? A sinner. And he has died in public so that we can recognize his love for us. Even though we're sinners. And even though as Christians, we still struggle with sin. The cross was public. It was also personal. He did not wait for us to move to him. He came looking for us. We see this in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, In other words, we're not looking for him. We're not thinking about him. We're not pursuing him. We're pursuing our sin. But God shows his love to what the text says 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, here we see the unity of both the Father and the Son. They're completely united in purpose so that Paul can speak of the crucifixion of the Son as evidence for the love of the Father. The Son is not assuaging the anger of an irrationally irate God making us lovable. No, the Son willingly becomes the scapegoat, taking upon himself the punishment for our sins, for my sin, for your sin. And he took it on so thoroughly that we can read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we can read this, for our sake, he, being the Father, made him, being the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin and died, we, so that we might become the righteousness of God and live. See that exchange. If you're one who struggles to believe that God could and does love you because you're a sinner, look away from what you've done. You might say, I, you don't understand. I'm evil. I'm compromised. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've put my family through. You don't know the choices I've made. You don't understand. I want to say back to you, no, you don't understand. Jesus died for evil people, for sinners. He died for the unworthy, the compromised. He died for scoundrels and the rebellious ones, adulterers, thieves, murderers, users. He died for the one-word category called sinner. And if you fall into the category of sinner, Jesus died for you. And if you trust him as a Christian, you can look to his dying and be assured of his steadfast love. See, in dying, the punishment we deserved was put upon Jesus so that we might receive the blessing he deserved. His crucifixion is evidence of God's love for us. And this love is public, it's personal, it's also permanent. It's also permanent. Look at verse 8. I want to, notice, I want to show you the tense of verse 8. But God shows his love for us. Notice that's present tense. Could render it, God continually shows his love for us. Not God showed, not God will show, but God continually shows his love for us. This is a forever now kind of permanence. This means the Father continually shows his love not just in the past, but to you personally, continually, forever. This is where we can see the crucifixion is always a present reality. We can see the impact of his death on the cross for us now as we look back and recognize that because he loves us, he sent his son to die for us. Standing as an enduring monument of his love toward us, we see the spotless Son of God hung and rejected and dying to show love to us. This is permanent and never changing, and it's always now, and it's always the way God shows his love to us. Christian, I want you to hear this, and I want you to gain confidence from this. God loves you, and the death of Jesus for you proves it. His love is for you, not because, his love for you is not because you love him, but it's because he loves you.
Before we move on, I want to just sit and reflect for a few moments that if you're a believer and you've trusted in the death of Christ to be a replacement for your death, because you're a great sinner, if you're a Christian, you need to realize and be confident in the fact that God loves you now, today, and always. That will never change. Many things about our lives change. One moment we're marrying our brides, the next moment we're saying goodbye. One moment we're bringing our children home from the hospital, the next moment they're leaving home. One moment we're enjoying full life and complete health, the next moment our life fades with that diagnosis. One moment we're full of hope, the next it's soured into disappointment. One day we're excited at all of our life opportunities, the next we're just tired of it all. But through it all, the unchanging reality is this. God shows his love to us. Through the death of Jesus, we see the undying love of God. And this will never change. It's public. It's personal. It's permanent. The Father responded in mercy to mankind's rebellion. Now, a couple weeks ago, we heard that when Adam sinned, all of us sinned. He was our representative, but he also did in the garden what we would do if we were in the garden. Remember, when Adam fell, we all fell. We would have done the same thing. Remember how Satan, the devil, tempted Adam. He said, eat the fruit and you'll be like God. Remember? Verse 4, after they say, hey, we can't eat the fruit, we'll die. Eve says that. The devil says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Adam and Eve wanted to take the place of God. They wanted not to worship God, not to follow God, but to be God's. But at the cross, we see this reversal. We see the perfect intersection of love and mercy. Instead of mankind taking the place of God, God the Son came to earth and took the place of sinful humanity. We didn't take God's place. He took ours. That, friends, is undeserved love that defies description. That's, that's the kind of love that we cannot lose, our, lose a grip of. That's the kind of love that when you recognize that you can't out-sin the love of God, when you recognize that this love is abiding and it's forever and it is permanent and it will not be shaken, that kind of love is the kind of love the Father has for you if you're a Christian. Now, does it always feel that way? No. Nope. That's why we need to set our feelings aside, push it to the edge of our experience here for just a second, and let the truth of Scripture speak to us. Whether it feels like it or not, most of the time it doesn't, whether it feels like it or not, we can read in verse 8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. That's true. No matter how you feel, no matter what you think, that's true. That's reality. About a hundred years ago, a man named Frederick Lehman wrote a hymn about the grandeur of God's love. It says in part, the love of God is greater far than the tongue or pen can ever tell. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and everyone a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The author of life died in love because he loved the sin-stained, rebellious people like you and like me. So did you see the proof? See, this is where we need the love of God to speak volumes because otherwise that voice in our head that constantly tells us we're unworthy, we fall short, we're not good enough, That's the voice that takes precedence. That's the voice that takes priority. But that voice does not always speak truth. That voice lies or is wrong. The voice of God from the Scriptures is not wrong and does not lie. We must be more aware of His love than we are of our sin. We must be more aware of his love than we are of our suffering. Are you more aware of your sin or his love? Now listen, we've all done wrong. I'm not minimizing sin. We all fall short in many different ways. But we also know that he freely forgives When you ask forgiveness, he does not withhold it. He doesn't say, "Mm, you've just passed the threshold. No, in love, he forgives us, our every sin. Why? Because we can look back and see the public display of Jesus Christ hung and dying for our sins. Because... God loves us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you suffering? Do you wonder if he notices or if he cares? Here, look in verse 8. We see the suffering Savior. We see a level of suffering that we will never experience. Friends, if you're a Christian, you will never experience the kind of death that Jesus died. You will not ever have to pay for your sins. You will not experience eternal death. You will instead experience eternal life. Is it because you're worthy? No. It's because God has loved you with an eternal, unending forever powerful love. So are you suffering? Do you wonder if he notices? If he cares? 
look to the cross. But, when, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the Son and his death proves the Father's undying love for us. Be confident in that. Don't be confident in yourself, in your ability to obey, in your ability to be godly, in your ability to turn over a new leaf and try, try better. Don't be confident there. Be confident instead in what God has done in Christ for you. For the Son's death proves the Father's undying love for you and me and everybody in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for any here who are more aware of their sin than of your love. And Lord, I pray that you would help them to have eyes to see and to look away from the things that they've done wrong and the regret and the recrimination they carry. And I pray instead that they would see you as as dying for them so that they might be able to have a hope in eternity, but also that they might have confidence that you love them, Lord. We're grateful that you are not like our other human relationships, Lord. We're grateful that you, you, you aren't put off by sin. You died for sinners like us. So, Lord, thank you. I also pray for any here who are suffering and not confident that God loves them because, you know, they're thinking, man, how could I be going through all this if God loves me? Lord, I pray that you would help them to see your love displayed at Golgotha, to see the son dying in agony as an eternal display of your love. Lord, I don't want to minimize anybody's suffering in this room, but Lord, I do want to pray that you would end that suffering. But Lord, I pray that you would help those people who are more aware of their suffering than of your love. I pray that they would have eyes to look away for just a moment or two, up and out at the cross, and recognize that there, there is one who has suffered beyond what they can imagine. There is one who died and in dying, showed love. And so, Lord, we're grateful that the love that we have from you is ours, not because we deserve it, but because you're good. I pray that we would have confidence. I pray that that would be our strength, Lord. I pray that we would boldly go to you and ask forgiveness. Boldly go to you and ask to to end suffering pray that we would boldly come to you knowing that you hear us and that you love us and you want good things for your people. But also, I pray, Lord, we would be more confident of your love for us than anything else. Help us to think and dwell on this. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.